No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. 20 years after that remarkable breakthrough performance by the U.S. Women's National Team winning the World Cup in 1999, transforming so many members of the team into household names. Their story and the aftermath of that victory is the subject of a new 30 for 30 podcast, Back Pass, and we are joined now by the reporter, writer, creator of Back Pass, Andrew Helms. Andrew, thank you for being with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. We had Julie Foudy on in the first segment uh, talking about what's going on right now in France. Uh, she's a big part, obviously, of any story about what happened 20 years ago in the U.S., but if you would... Um, you would take us back into time, give us a sense, frame it in the context of what was going on that summer, how big a deal it was when Brandy Chastain scored that penalty. Yeah, I think it's 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 hard to remember all these years later just how monumental the 99 World Cup was. But, you know, I remember uh, I was in middle school at the time and, you know, every kid in the neighborhood gathered in my parents' living room to oh, watch. Great. Oh, great. You were in middle school. I, I was 30 years old. I was an ESPN report. I'm doing exactly <laughs> now what I was doing then. But go on. It's all right. Show off. Yeah. So I was yeah in middle school. And I remember, you know, my sister was a few years older. And I remember, you know, the way she and her friends looked up to those players, the way I looked up to those players um, and talking to, you know, Julie Foudy. And talking to Brian Ascuri, those on the team, you know, they had been kind of laboring in darkness for years, right? They won the World Cup in 91. No one paid attention. And then finally, you know, they, Julie tells the story of getting on the bus, going to Giant Stadium for the first game, and they're sitting bogged down in traffic. And suddenly they realize the traffic is fans. You know, people are coming to see them. And so it's this transformative experience where, where for the first time, you know, women's pro sports, a women's pro team, had captured the country's imagination. And, you know, the aftermath of 99, it just snowballed. There were, you know, they were at the White House. They were on the cover of, you know, every magazine, every morning show. And that gave them this, this, uh, this platform where they started saying, you know, what can we do next? What can we do to kind of build on this momentum and have a lasting impact to grow the game, not just for us, but for future generations? And that's where the seeds of, of building the first women's pro league started. Uh, the WUSA, which is what Backpass, the, the podcast, is all about. We're speaking with Andrew Helms about Backpass, his new 30 for 30 podcast. And, and so the assumption um, in the giddy moments and days and weeks after that tremendous win for the United States women's national team was that this was something to be built upon. What went wrong? It's a great question. Um, you know, I think to take you back, you know, everyone's kind of in those, I always would say the heady days of 99, you know, we're in this moment where it seems as if nothing can go wrong. You've got, you know, Mia Hamm is a celebrity star in commercials with Michael Jordan, you know, they have, you have these huge famous athletes and then bringing that together, the, the investor group was star studded. You had the founder of the league was John Hendricks, the visionary behind the Discovery Channel. He was watching the World the World Cup with his family, and he's kind of you know motivated. And he's got a young daughter, a soccer playing daughter, and thinks 
this is such a transformative thing for her. She should have, you know, these, these players deserve a, a platform to play the game week in and week out. And he reaches out to the founders of, uh, to, of Time Warner, of Continental Cable Vision, of Comcast. You know, the biggest names in cable TV in the country were investing in women's pro soccer because, you know, at the time, as one of the investors said, you know, it wasn't unreasonable to think that uh, women could be the face of soccer in America and not men. And that was going to be what pro soccer in America was. Um, but to get to your question of what went wrong, I think it was partially that, that hubris that they, they weren't as conscious on the budget side as they needed to be in those first few years. And they spent way too much money in their first year. We tell a story in the, in the podcast of, of, you know, they're sitting around the boardroom in the middle of the first season. And, you know, Julie Fowdy told us it was the, she was on the board and it was the come to Jesus meeting because they looked at the, the budget and they realized, oh, my God. We budgeted $40 million for five years, and all the money is gone midway through season one. And that was a moment where they realized that these projections of, you know, we're going to have a pro league. It's going to start turning money in three to five years. Um, it's going to make a profit. That's where I think they started to realize, like, oh, man, this is going to cost way more. And that's where, you know, to get to the question of what went wrong, you get to the second piece of it, which is how much does it cost to start a pro league? How, how long should your timeline be if you're going to build something from scratch? And that's where you, if you compare to, say, Major League Soccer, the men's league, after five years, they were $250 million in the hole, you know? The, the women's league after three years was $100 million in the hole. So kind of in, in comparable situations and in, in, in arguably in somewhat of a better financial picture. And what was the difference? is that Major League Soccer had a few billionaires who are ready to step up and say, we, wanna, we have a 20, 30-year timeline and we're going to see this through. And that, for whatever reasons, and we can get into them, hasn't been the case on the women's side. There hasn't been a willingness from investors to lose money over 10, 20, 30 years to build the fan base, to build the audience that'll make a women's pro soccer league successful in this country. We're speaking with Andrew Helms about his fascinating new 30 for 30 podcast, Back Pass. And, you know, around the world, we see viable women's professional leagues, not only in soccer, but in basketball and volleyball, other sports as well. We haven't, um, we haven't seen a women's professional soccer league succeed at the level it has in some other countries here in the U.S. What did the WUSA experiment back in 99 tell us about what it will take? You know, I think the WSA experiment shows the the thing that the WSA had was, you know, you had the celebrity stars of 99. You had, you know, all these components. You had these big name cable investors. It seemed like the alchemy was right. You had you had the right pieces in the water. Um, but the, the missing ingredient was time. I remember the, one of the GMs told us, uh, she was the Katie button who was the, the general manager of the, the Washington freedom. It was this July game in the third season, the Philly charge were playing the Washington freedom and some somewhere in the middle of the second half, Mia ham tripped a player on the Philadelphia team and the Philly fans just started booing Mia ham. And she was, she was shocked, right? right? American soccer fans were booing Mia Hamm. But in her mind, she thought, that's what we need to develop. We need it so that you're not just a fan of Julie Foudy and, and Mia Hamm when they put on a national team kit. We need you to become a fan of the Philadelphia Charge. We need you to become a fan of um, the San Diego Spirit where Julie Foudy played. And that, those relationships take time. You know, I think, kind of a personal story, my dad 
never watched soccer growing up, but as I got into it as a, as as I got older, we grew up in DC. He's now becoming a DC United fan. But it took, you know, he didn't become a fan right when that team started. It's now only, you know, 20 years into that team, his son's a, a fan of the sport. He's starting to become a fan of that sport too. And those, I think that's kind of how fandom is a thing that's passed down, right? And we need to give these these things time to, to grow. And that's what's been so great about what, what those investors have done for Major League Soccer is they've given it the time and space to breathe and grow and become a viable league. And that's that's what's needed on the women's side of the game, too. The way it ended for the WUSA um, and you know, all the recriminations, all of the uh, ways in which people realized it had uh, not been handled um, the best possible way, what were the long-term effects? Would would people look at the WUSA experiment then and say, I don't want any part of this? Yeah, actually, I talked to um, some folks who were involved in the second iteration of, of women's pro soccer, and they said it was really hard to get investors um, the second time around because they'd say, well, we tried women's pro soccer. It didn't work out. Um, and so that was kind of a, a recurring theme of getting that that investor group that's willing to lose money over a period of time when the narrative had been built up that this thing doesn't succeed. When in reality, if you, you know, we have the budgets, we looked at all the numbers, by the final season, they were they were pretty close to breaking even in a few markets. There were a few teams that really needed overhauls. Um, it's, it's a story of like any league, you know, it was working in a few places, it wasn't working in a few others, they needed to retool and learn and learn from their mistakes. Uh, but yeah, that's the, the, the challenge is just you need you you're never going to get it right the first time you know no no pro league has a you know come out of the gates and, and and figured it out and it's it's taken that longitudinal investment to to make it work what is the current state of the health of women's professional soccer in the US i mean i think one of the big pieces of of the the state of women's pro soccer today is that unlike wusa U.S. soccer, the, the governing body of the sport in this country, is fully invested and back and backs the NWSL, which is the current pro league in this country. Back 20 years ago, when the women won the World Cup, the relationship between U.S. soccer and the players wasn't very good, and the women didn't trust U.S. soccer. They didn't want U.S. soccer to be involved in their pro league. They didn't want major league soccer to be involved in their pro league. And that's one of the reasons they went an independent route and that there was actually, you know, a lot of hostility and, and honestly competition that that the men's pro league, which wasn't doing too great at that time, back in 90, 99, 2000, saw the creation of a wins pro league as competition. You know, they saw they thought that this was going to be something that might take fans away, take butts out of seats. It was a shame, you know, basically in one of the markets in Washington, D.C., you know, they their first few double headers where, you know, you had Mia Hamm of the Freedom and Marco Echeverry of D.C. United playing together, they'd draw 35,000 fans, but they stopped doing the double headers because the GMs of the teams couldn't agree to a, a formula to divide the ticket revenue from those games, which was crazy because, you know, that those were games that were, were drawing, you know, bigger crowds than either team could have gotten on their own. But the relationship was really bad back then, um, and that was a big reason why the league folded. Um, flash forward to today in NWSL, U.S. soccer is involved in the league. They run the league's operations. They're there to make sure the league doesn't get over its skis in terms of expenses. Um, 
they're paying in the salaries of national team players who are in the league. And the U.S. soccer has kind of recognized that a pro league is a valuable piece of building and having a successful national team, a national team that can, you know, win a World Cup game 13 to nothing. So it's gotten better. And you look at cities like the Portland Thorns, where they draw on the on, you know, week in, week out, 17,000 a game. And they have a really good relationship with the MLS team, the Portland Timbers. Then you look, you know, outside New York City, the Sky Blue FC draw a couple thousand a game. They're a, they play at Rutgers, so for folks in New York City, it's hard to get to. So it's really a tale of a league that has a few markets that are succeeding, has a few markets that aren't succeeding. Um, you know, television uh, audiences are really small. You know, and it's gonna, you know, it's a question for fans. You know, if you're tuning in to, if you're enjoying watching the World Cup this this summer. How many of those fans are going to go back and, and watch the local NWSL teams? Because it's going to take that sustained interest to make this league viable. It can't just be every four years you tune in. So it's on the investors, but it's also on us as fans and as you know those in the media to, to cover it and give it the attention it deserves and, and make sure that we're, we're paying attention to the this game all the time. And the hope is that... Further success, which is expected uh, in France over the course of the next month, will uh, put more butts in the seats at the NWSL games. That's always the hope. Yeah, yeah, but I think as as people have found, you know, it's you can't bank on every four years winning the World Cup, right? You have to you have to build sustainable audiences, and and certain teams have figured out how to do that better. And at the same time, you know, this is the we're in a changing world where for the first time, the European teams are now investing a lot more money in women's soccer. So if the U.S. doesn't figure it out quickly, watch out because Alex Morgan can make a lot more money playing for Lyon than she can playing for uh, Orlando City, where she plays now. She plays in the U.S. because she wants to grow the game here. But you're you're asking players to, you know, in some ways, take lose, lose out on some of their revenue earning years to build a game in America. And, and, you know, is that a fair proposition to be asking you know, our top, our top women's soccer players. Andrew Helms's new podcast, his new 30 for 30 podcast is Back Pass. The fascinating story of the 1999 U.S. Women's National Team, its victory at the World Cup, and then its subsequent efforts to build professional soccer for women here in the U.S. Andrew, it's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us on The Sporting Life. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm Jeremy Schapp. And you can listen to new editions of The Sporting Life every Saturday and Sunday morning on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app, beginning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time.